0: Well, I guess we are ready to roll. Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux. It's the 8th of April 2011, and I hope you're doing well. My voice, it's back. Well, it's very close to being back. Uh, It was savagely attacked by an FBI-planted virus, Uh, or my daughter. Ah, potato, potato. Anyway, I hope you're doing very well. And uh, just a reminder of uh, upcoming speaking gigs, uh, FaceTime gigs, family time gigs. May. Yes, it's May. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. No, it's April. No, May. Yes, it's right. It's May. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I don't know why I can't get that right. Um, So, yeah, I'll be, of course, uh, at the Porcupine Freedom Festival at Porkfest. I believe it is Porkfest. Yeah, I know. I got lots of people who said, dude, you sounded a lot better with a cold. And uh, so uh, I'm obviously going to go out and uh, lick children's toys at the library. Uh, so porkfest.com, you can catch me. Uh, I will be uh, woven into the very fabric of space-time uh, in Porkfest. Uh, you can go to porkfest.com. And hopefully you will be able to drop by June 20th to 26th. It is a blast. And if you want to see little boys with strangely long hair, that is the place to go. So I hope that you will join there. Uh, and then I will be at the Liberty Fest 2, In New York, which you can get at lfnyc.com. That's going to be September the 10th. Uh, What a lineup. What a lineup. Tom Woods, Mike Church, Jack Hunter, Adam Kokesh, Gary Franchi, Dan Halloran, Join Dennis, Joe Kennedy, Jordan Page, and only a few people with two first names. Never trust those ever since George Michael stole my corgi. Anyway, uh, I hope that you will join us there. Tickets are on sale now. And last but not least, libertopia.org. Uh, that is uh, a very cool uh, cool place to go. It's going to be in San Diego this year. Oh, let me see if I can spell libertopia.org correctly. I believe I can. Let me just double-check the uh, – yeah, libertopia.org. Uh, it's going to be in um, uh, October 21st to 23rd in San Diego. It is uh, some really great speakers. Um, I'm going to be um, – Master of Ceremonies, uh, which I believe comes with a cape and uh, nothing else. Uh, The founder from PayPal was there last year. And uh, Peter Boss is going to be there. Bill Ruppert. Um, Gary Chate. David Friedman. uh, Patrick Friedman, who is the seasteading dude, he will be there. Uh, He will actually, interestingly enough, be taking his anti-anti-nautia pills for being on uh, firm land for a while, I think. Anthony Gregory Research Analyst at the Independent Institute. Rod Long uh, will be there. He was there last year and a very great and enjoyable public speaker. And and Angela Keaton, Development Director of Antiwar.com. Spence McCallum, Isaac Morehouse, Jim Perron, Sharon Presley, Social Psychologist, Co-Founder of Laissez-Faire Books. Larkin Rose will be there, I'm sure, raising his voice in the cause of liberty. Uh, George Donnelly. The list goes on and on. I hope that you will be coming. These are all people that I'm going to have to learn a little bit about so that I can make fun of them as my master of ceremonies thing. Anyway, enough uh, enough of my uh, uh, telling you to come and see Liberty Fest. I I recommend, I mean, even if you don't like what I'm going to say, which is perfectly fine, uh, come see some great speakers. But really just come to meet people that uh, you can be completely open with. I think that's a really, really, really cool thing. I believe that the Liberty Cruise is full up. And uh, but you can check it out fdr.com sorry, fdrurl.com forward slash cruise. And so, I hope that you can check that out. Uh, maybe you can squeeze your way in there by um making and you know, batting eyelids at somebody who already has a cabin, uh, myself not included. But um, uh, that's it. Other stuff coming up, but working on some other projects that I think are very interesting. Don't forget, don't forget, I am shockingly on uh, on TV um once a week these days. That's uh, rt.com russian television where i do an outrageous scottish accent because my knowledge of geography is truly pitiful and uh, i hope that you will be able to check it out it is on rt.com weeknights at 7 p.m and um, if you really want to see some manly biceps next to some pretty girl guidey noodle arms uh, just look at adam and i standing together uh, i think it's uh well it's striking and it shows you that you do get to do push-ups in the marines so that's it. Um, I don't have a huge list of things to to do. I'm just working up on f- uh, finishing up a very short book called um, A Guide to Human, which is uh, a sort of tongue-in-che- tongue-in-cheek instructional manual for new political uh, appointees. So I'm working on that, finishing that up. I have another book uh, floating around that I'm just starting on. So lots of uh Lots of fun projects cooking around, and uh, thanks again to recent interviewees, and thanks again to everyone who commented that I seemed woefully underdressed relative to uh, Jeffrey Tucker, who is the man with a bow tie, and uh, I believe that I am going to get a monocle with sparkles. Uh, something like that, some sort of fireworks or sparkles. I think that should uh, that should put that uh, disparity to rest, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. So uh, enough <coughs> about me. Let's get to the brains of the outfit, the bedrock upon which this show rests. The listener is you with the microphone. If you'd like to talk, just let James Pirich in the chat room know and he will put you in. You can listen in the chat room. And uh, oh, I also wanted to mention that I had a very, I think, I think a very good podcast Podcast with uh, a fellow who has some issues around going to be an entrepreneur. And it's FDR 1905, <laughs> because we are now into the 20th century of uh, Freedom Aid Radio podcasts. So uh, I hope that you will check that out. And uh, of course, uh, 1904, the Jeff Tucker interview, part three, great. And um, a good Sunday show, I think, 1901. Um, so I hope that you will check those out. Thank you for your patience. If you have a question or comment, now would be the time to speak up.
1: Super, Steph. Well, I really enjoyed your uh, entrepreneurial terror podcast a lot. Um, I think it's one of your best uh, related to uh, uh, entrepreneurship because it really goes down to the essence. Uh, and that is uh, to take risk. and and uh, uh, to ju- to to jump in, and you talk about all the barriers that um, are there to do with that uh, is actually, um, yeah, uh, trying you to not take risks. Huh? And, right. Um. Uh, relates to that, that because uh, I'm really wrestling with this issue also, but not to, um, in relation to entrepreneurship, but in relation to investing. Um, and um, especially Harry Brown had a very big influence on me, I, I, I talked with you before about him, about his permanent portfolio ID, and Harry Brown says that, that do not speculate with the capital you cannot afford to lose. Yeah and two years ago I discovered him and I said yeah he's right, I have these savings I shouldn't speculate in the markets if I cannot afford to lose it so I I follow his uh, vision and have a permanent portfolio but today I'm thinking like it's not correct what he says there you know I mean the the disadvantage of the permanent portfolio is you don't take a lot of risk because it's uh, spread between different assets and thus you don't make money. You make about seven, eight, nine percent, which is actually through inflation. So you don't really make money. So, and then I'm, I'm asking myself like, okay, can I afford to lose this money? No, I cannot. It would be not good to lose it, but there is no other way. If you want to make money, you have to take the risks, even with the capital that you cannot afford to lose. So I have this idea that Harry Brown actually, Jumps on the bandwagon uh, to uh, uh, to to scare people off taking risks, you know. <clears throat> but I would like to get your your feedback on that. Um, I think-
0: sure. Look, I'll I'll tell you what you think. Just you know, it, an important caveat: I am no expert in any way, shape, or form on investments, right? So I'm just going to give you my personal opinions. None of this is investment advice or anything like that. I'll just give you my personal opinions about the way that I look at things now. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while, but Harry Brown had an idea that you have, you know, quarter bonds, quarter stocks, quarter cash, and uh, what was it? A quarter gold. That way, you're protected against just about any way that the uh, the market goes. Uh, As something like that, and he's got a whole book on that. And uh, it looks <clears throat> seven or eight percent a year is pretty good. Uh, I, I inflation is not quite that high. At least official inflation is not that quite that high at the moment. Uh, depending on where you're calling from. Um, I think my my argument would be this that the important thing over the next little while is not to try and make money but to try not to lose money I think that's uh, that's the important thing over the next little while and there are some ways that you can not lose money or at least minimize your losses and one of those ways is to buy Buy things rather than instruments. So to buy to buy houses, to buy gold, to buy silver, to buy. Or if you're going to buy instruments like stocks or whatever, at least buy them in mining companies or or companies that are um, going to be profiting or gain market impetus from the rising prices of precious metals. So. Uh, you know, I think by definition, if you can't afford to lose the money, you shouldn't be trying to to make the money. Um, I I believe that investments are you know slow and steady wins the race. Like if you can get seven or eight percent over ten or twenty years, you've made a fortune. Uh, and and even if that means in terms of real dollars, you're not hugely far ahead, uh, but you haven't lost. Uh, and I think that's that's very important. I think that where the economy uh, the economies of the West are going is to a place where if you can hang on to the value of what you have, you have done very well. And I think that's important. And I've been in business where we've you've gone through sort of recessions or problems in the marketplace and so on. And you change the way that you look at things when you're in a recession in a business, right? So in a, bo- in a boom period, you, tr- you invest and you try to grow your business because business opportunities are are coming up all the time. Whereas in a recession or a depression, what you do is you try to uh, maintain the core value of your business. You can like a bear going into hibernation, right? You're not out hunting. You're just, you know, losing a third of your body fat trying to stay alive for the winter. Uh, I believe, again, this is all just personal idiot, amateur nonsense opinion, but I believe that the next few years are going to be a time to attempt to maintain the value of your assets, not... To try uh, to grow them, uh, I, that's you know my opinion. Of course, anybody can do whatever they want, and this is just my my approach. But I think that there's ways that you can do that by converting uh, instruments into things that actually exist, right? Because uh, a house will drop in value, uh, but it's very unlikely to be wiped out. But uh, stocks and 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 shares, and maybe even bonds, right? I mean, can be uh can can lose significant amounts of their value and you can't do anything with them. At least a house you can move into it or whatever and it serves some utility for you or other things that you can buy. So that's you know my particular approach. Uh I don't think it's a time for big risk in the stock market. Um you know the one exception being uh, can um you know with, with I think astute knowledge of economics, uh you can predict there is going to be some areas where the economy is going to do better. Or sorry, whether marketplace is going to do better or worse than um, than other things, uh, based on you know the knowledge of what's happening in the political sphere and with national debts and deficits and so on. But um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a tough time to go out at the moment and try and make a lot of money in the stock market. That's just my my thoughts about it. Uh, does that if any use to you, but definitely look take Harry Brown's advice or anybody with any competence advice over mine. These are just my thoughts on it.
1: Um, yeah, Steph. The problem is uh, my my definition of investing is um, not uh, going in the stock market. That's only one option. It can can be equally going into gold, eh? and sure. I think that's also speculating. That's also investing, eh? and I think also, you also take a high risk there, uh, but you can get high rewards. Eh? Um, but so my so so. <clears throat> but the problem I have is like, would you say? Like you're saying, like okay, it's not a moment to take risks, um, so play it safe, okay? But would you say that to an entrepreneur also, for during a recession, like uh, stay where you are, don't take? No, risks. no, no, no. But see,
0: no, no, because big, look, f- f- being an entrepreneur, sorry to interrupt. Being an entrepreneur is very different from being a, a speculator on the stock market, because being an entrepreneur, you have much more control over the value of what you're doing than if you're buying some stock or or gold or whatever, and I think gold is, I mean, from what I've heard, gold is still a pretty good investment. But as an entrepreneur, you you can control how hard you work. You can control how many cold calls you make. You can control how much marketing you spend. You can control the quality of your work. You can control uh, so much more than you can, it's almost infinitely more than you can control in the stock market. So I, I, I wouldn't put the two in that kind of classification. The other thing that's true uh, which I mentioned in, in the 1905 podcast, FDR 1905, is that if you go into some investment and you lose your money, then you're just out a lot of money. But if you go into entrepreneurship, you are adding to your human capital no matter what happens. You're adding to your knowledge of business. You're adding to your well-roundedness as far as uh, business goes. Uh, and that has value no matter what. So you have far greater control. In, stock, in entrepreneurship than you do in investments and no matter what happens in the entrepreneurial field, uh, you are adding to your human value, your economic value uh, so I think th- those would differentiate it
1: Yes, yeah, I, I wouldn't agree there, I think that um, uh, I think it's uh, the same uh, true, you have more control as an entrepreneur but in essence it's the same like um, it requires a, a lot of study uh, to, to invest uh, right, to, to, to bet on the right assets. Eh? And um, so I think that it's, it's very, very comparable, um, uh, but um, yeah, I wouldn't agree there, you know. I, I think it's the same story, like you say during recession, it's a very good time to be an entrepreneur. You can make good money, there are a lot of chances. And I think the same is true for an investor.
0: Well, and I I don't have enough expertise to uh, to disagree with you on that. I certainly think that during, an, during a recession, uh, you can make good money as an entrepreneur because people are looking for cheaper deals and a startup tends to be less expensive. I mean, that's what the startup offers that that is different from the more established companies is a willingness to work harder for less money. And during a recession, that's the kind of deals that people are looking for. So I think... Um, as an entrepreneur, a recession could be a very good time to start a business. And I, yeah, I'm sure there are undervalued stocks in a recession and so on, but I just don't have the expertise to, to speak with any competence on that.
1: Yeah, but when I'm talking investing, I don't I mean stocks, I mean gold also. And my idea is if I would take the risk as an investor, it would be gold. Huh? And I mm-hmm. do think that that's a very good example when it would happen, what you also predict, that we get hard times, a serious recession. Gold will raise a lot, in purchasing power it will be not just to preserve your uh, value. No, it will raise a lot. Huh? Your,
0: oh, yeah. Uh, no, there's no question that you know Austrian economic theory, and it's fairly mainstream in economics now, as far as I understand it. Austrian economic theory is very clear on this: that uh, increases in the money supply add to the value of gold, uh, increase the value of gold, and you know people like Doug Casey, whose investment expertise uh, is very good, I would imagine. Uh, still says that even though gold is quite high, it's a, it's a well worth uh, well worth investing in at the moment. So you know, I simply pass that along from him, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's I think that you're quite right about that.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, but but one thing I, I digress with the gold of go- a lot of gold investors is they always say play it safe, hey, gold is the safest. But I think that's totally wrong. It's a, a ve- it's a very risky asset, and that's that's why you can uh, uh, you can become very rich uh, if you are uh, at the right time in gold. But you can also become serious, uh, lose like eighty percent of your purchasing power with gold when you invest during bad times. So, so I would say it's also very risky. Um, Sorry, did
0: you say eighty percent? So you're saying that there's been a time where gold has gone down eighty percent
1: in purchasing power yes exactly Hmm. during the 80s and 90s the total loss was 80 percent and that is counting only official inflation Uh, so if you count well listen i'm sorry I, i don't mean to to interrupt
0: you but i'm just not sure that i have much of value to add to to this investment stuff so i just want to make sure i get to to the other callers but i really do appreciate that uh that feedback. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I, I'm tend to be. I tend to be very conservative by nature. Uh, I'm very much a bird in the hand It's worth two in the bush when it comes to to finances and investments. But uh, uh, that may be just my my time in life and my circumstances. It's different for everyone. But I really do appreciate your um, your your uh, your input on this.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Steph. Thanks a lot. You're very
0: yeah. Very welcome. All right. We have. Look at that. We have lots of time for other callers if you want to speak up. We've got lots of people, I guess, in the queue. Um, grab the mic. Grab the gusto. Carpe the fish.
2: Hi, Stefan. Hi. How's it going? Um, we spoke briefly at the Freedom Summit. I um, I also spoke briefly to you on Facebook about um, the possibility of conducting an interview. Um, Michael Connolly, I don't know if you remember, but um, I do. I'll try I to do. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, good to talk to you again. Um, my question, I'll try not to keep it, uh, I'll try to keep it like not wordy and everything, but, um, I watched your video about, uh, Ron Paul and I absolutely agree. I consider myself, a um, an anarcho-capitalist to most extents and, um, I do agree entirely that it could be very catastrophic uh, if Ron Paul was to actually implement um, the policies that he speaks about, and I don't know of how their implementation would uh, would go. I tend to side more with you on it, but um, in regards to that, he just uh, did an interview where he said that he would pardon all um, non-violent drug offenders and things of that nature, and it seems so tempting to want to believe in um, that kind of candidate as a stepping stone towards the type of society that people like you and I believe in, which would be a stateless society. But on the same token, I also think that uh, anyone who thinks they can demand freedom from the state has a fundamental flaw in their logic, because freedom is something that you have to have uh, innately already. So demanding it from the state is like um, a paradox so i was wondering if you think that there's any value at all in backing a candidate like that if you are um, an anarcho-capitalist as uh you and i tend to um agree on
0: yeah i know i guess because ron paul um what did he get half a million dollars in his money bomb the other day um uh he's 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 back in the game um i, I actually just um uh, read his recent book uh, uh, on end the fed and uh yeah look i mean he's I think he's bang on the money as far as his analysis of fiat currency goes. Uh, I think that he obviously would lean, like anybody who's principled, and I'm sure he has some very solid principles, he would lean towards the non-aggression principle as an axiom. And uh, whether he's small government or no government, I mean, the the causal chain between him and anarchists is very close, right? I mean, Lou Rockwell wrote the introduction to um, Murray Rothbard's a book on uh, on uh, anarcho capitalism, and uh, he was the aide and good, I think, close friend and and supporter of Ron Paul for many years. So you don't even have to play two degrees of separation to get uh, between uh, Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard. He speaks very highly of Murray Rothbard, so I don't uh, I don't have any particular reason to believe that Ron Paul would be opposed to a stateless society. I'm sure that he would, uh, like anybody uh, with any sense of integrity, he would be uh, intrigued if not excited by by the very idea. And yeah, some people have, I guess it was 2000 and, oh my God, six or seven that I did a, a series on uh, on Ron Paul. Uh, look, I would love to see drug offenders out of uh, out of prison. Uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, in the future, it is going to be looked at a vile, disgusting, sickening Soviet-style gulag that these people are caught in because of the hysterical self-righteousness of uh, a largely Christian nation, who is supposed to love its enemies and turn the other cheek, uh, punishing people who are having a moment's pleasure in this world. So I think it is it is monstrous, and my heart breaks for the you know what is it 800,000 Americans arrested every year for some sort of drug problem. Um, my heart flames with anger at the double standard of uh, politicians who gain easy votes from dumb and angry people by demonizing drug users who then turn around if their own kids are ever caught with drugs and pull every string they can to get them off and into rehab. Drug use, drug abuse is the symptom of child abuse and it needs to be treated as a problem, as a medical health, mental issue, uh, mental health problem, not uh, punished uh, as um, punishment is the source. Violence against children, abuse of children is the source of drug abuse and therefore it is a grim and hideous cycle to throw them in, abuse, in an abusive situation like a government-run jail. So I'm with him there. Uh, I'm with him there. I think, it's, uh, I think it's, it would be a fantastic thing to do. I think that it is not going to happen. Uh, in fact, I know that it's not going to happen. I, I think it would be great if it did happen. But it's the, it's the magic wand theory. Politics is the magic wand theory that if we can wave this magic wand and let all of the nonviolent offenders, uh, drug offenders out of prison, then that will be great. But unfortunately that is not how human society evolves. Human society evolves when people understand the ethics and the virtue of the situation, they empathize and they have evolved to the point where they look at these poor people in jail with horror and sympathy and compassion and caring And that's how they get out of jail. I don't believe that there's a magic wand where somebody goes, kaboom! And these people all come out of jail and society then evolves. No, society evolves to develop empathy first and then these people will come out of jail. I know that that's painful and I know that that's slow, but that's the way that it works. There is no magic wand that is going to move human compassion and empathy and virtue and philosophical integrity forward. So let's just put a few examples of of what might happen out there. Maybe this is catastrophizing, maybe it's not. But let's say Ron Paul gets into office. Next day, Ron Paul releases all nonviolent drug offenders and uh, millions of people stream out into the streets who've been in prison for many years. Well, some of those people are going to commit crimes. And what's the media going to do? Terror, crime wave, sweeping across the nation as deadly criminals released by libertarian president to terrorize your children and steal your cats and rape your garden gnomes. The horror, buildings in flames, as, right? I mean, this is, what's going to, this is what's going to be portrayed because humanity has not evolved yet to the point where it feels compassion for these poor victims of state power. And therefore, there's going to be some – these people have, have – it, 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 it just – it angers me so much. That there's this easy drug world for people because it causes them to make such staggeringly bad decisions and it profits them. It causes huge profits because, of course, the drugs are illegal for them to make these terribly bad decisions like getting involved in the drug trade. And so what's happened is people get involved in the drug trade because they've had terrible childhoods. And they then fail to develop empathy. They fail to develop social skills, they fail to develop literacy, they fail to develop business or marketable free market skills, and so they then go to jail where they're further traumatized, messed up, screwed up, abused, become violent, become terrorizer, d- don't have any vulnerability or sensitivity or empathy left, and we then take these people and put them back on the streets with no social understanding about the level of care and compassion that they're going to need to reintegrate into society. And things are going to go very badly, very quickly. Uh, you know, yeah, to absolutely. me, right. let, let me just give you one last, last example, right? So uh, to me, uh, trying to steer society through politics, trying to get, achieve your ends through politics is like getting a giant hand and, grabbing the front of a car and turning it. Well, all that's happened is the car's going to flip over. No, you need to educate the driver. You need to take driving lessons. You need to have practice, and then you can steer the car. You can't just whip the front of the car around and think you're going to do the same thing as steering. It needs to be organic. It needs to be built from the ground up. That's my very strong opinion. And uh, so, and and look, I say this as a guy who has, at times, tried to move debate uh, debate forward too fast. The, the amount of, of blowback that you're going to get if ron paul were to release uh, criminals and then one criminal one criminal somewhere is going to do some really bad thing uh or ex-criminal ex-drug guy uh, these people are symptoms of intergenerational uh, aggression against children and there's no amount of political edicts that's going to make that all better overnight
2: yeah i agree 100 um it's just that I think that my main uh question would be in like trying to rationalize that it wouldn't be cognitive dissonance to say that I am a, a for a stateless society then at the same time somewhat um backing Ron Paul when I do explain it as as being an atheist and knowing that it is a mainly Christian movement um when I do speak to these people I speak to them more saying that I uh the ideas that Ron Paul um speaks about would be uh they're they're good to get into the mainstream they're good to have people to hear them and um you know, that's what I say. I don't think that he would get elected. And I definitely don't think that if he did get elected, these things would be, uh, you know, implementable in any way. And I do agree with you 100% on the blowback and how it would be. But it's just from a philosophical standpoint, it's hard not to want to uh, sympathize with the first candidate that I've ever seen that um, actually embodies these ideals. And uh, that's just more of my question would be, um, do you think it is even useful at all to, to back a candidate when you are for a state-free society and to try and uh, get uh, on his side to let those ideals be heard?
0: But it, it, look, it depends on how you think social change is achieved. It, it's not Ron Paul or nothing, right? That's the argument I've made for many years. It's not Ron Paul or nothing. You know, there is that old, old, old fairy tale that I, I've always loved, uh, the, the Tortoise and the Hare. And uh, I like it because the hare loses and my hair has betrayed me so significantly that any any fairy tale where a hare loses is good for me. But, you know, they're like a, they've got a mile to run or whatever and the hare runs around. And he's all skittish and he goes up trees and then he takes a nap because he runs so fast, right? The tortoise, t- turtle is just sort of – tortoises tortoise is plodding along, plodding along slowly. And then – the tortoise crosses the finish line because the hare doesn't wake up from his nap and so on. So there's that slow and steady wins the race versus this hyperkinetic uh, footprints on the ceiling kind of stuff. And the liberty movement as a whole has a choice to make. Uh, and it's I believe it's it's sort of an either-or choice in that if people believe that voting somebody into office, however wildly improbable it is, that it's going to occur or that he's going to be able to achieve what he wants or that society is going to perceive what he does achieve in a positive way. Um, All of those things to me would would need to be satisfied first. In In an educated population where a third, almost a third of the people believe or don't know that the earth goes around the sun. I mean we're asking people to understand the Federal Reserve and fiat currency and a significant percentage of the American population believes that they've seen a ghost. Uh, I, I, I mean, in a sense, we're trying to explain uh, advanced microchip uh, design. Uh, yeah, that's to, what I'm saying. Uh... Though is it,
2: it's it's like it, it's like a, a. I know it's not Ron Paul or nothing, and I absolutely don't believe in in uh, the working mechanisms of politics at all. But it's like the absolute. Uh, you know, despondency of the people and their inability to understand these concepts make it seem like supporting Ron Paul, even being an anarchist, would be more of a step forward into getting anyone to know anything about these issues.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, the the, the reality is that uh, look, I am in a unique position. I'm not the only person in this position, but in terms of the history of philosophy, I'm in a in a unique position in that I now have five years of accumulated evidence of feedback on rational arguments. And this doesn't mean that all my arguments are perf- perfectly rational or that I'm never wrong, but I try to put forward rational arguments with uh, with evidence. And I'm in a unique position, which very I can't think of any philosophers, you know, prior to the internet who would have ever had this kind of feedback, where I've read I don't know maybe a hundred thousand. Um, comments on on YouTube videos and I've got, I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and there are hundreds of thousands of board posts and so on, Uh, I have a pretty good, which is not to say scientific, but I have a pretty good lay of the land as far as people, and these are the people interested in philosophy, these are the people interested, this isn't the general population right this isn't being played in high schools across the country yet <laughs> but you know people can't yeah, that's think the idea. they can't think they can't think it's absolutely tragic it's absolutely horrible that people can't think what happens is they either like an argument for emotional reasons and then get behind it or they dislike an argument for emotional reasons and then they they do ad hominems and and other kinds of straw man attacks and so on but people can't think the number of people who've actually sent me uh, emails where they've said, you know, this logical step you made was not consistent, but this one—they've been a few. They've been a few, but it's maybe one in a thousand, maybe. And so the idea that we can take rational arguments to a general population that simply cannot think—that simply cannot think—to uh, me is uh, is not irrational. I mean, it, it's <laughs> we're, we're as crazy as the people we're trying to. I mean, we need to have people around who can think before we bring rational arguments and. Why people can't think is pretty clear. I mean, that the, the science on it is fairly clear that uh, people can't think because of childhood trauma. And the trauma comes sometimes from the family and sometimes from the church and sometimes from the schools and sometimes from all three. Yeah, but, definitely. You know, t- 20, t- over 20% of adult Americans are not able to locate information in a piece of text. They can't make low-level inferences from printed materials.
2: I know. I was actually really surprised by your conversation with uh, the feedback that you got from Peter Joseph. I was really looking forward to that debate, uh, even though, um, you know, I was into his first film and I've followed him slightly since then. But, you know, even he couldn't uh, argue rationally. And I was really disappointed by that. I thought it would be a good debate. But um, I totally Look, almost agree with 50%,
0: perc- Almost 50 percent of American adults, they read so poorly that they earn significantly below the threshold poverty level for an individual. I mean, this is this is what we're working with. One in seven Americans can't read basic text. Yeah, 14% of the American adult population can't fill out a job application. 30 million people. Oh, they can't read a newspaper story written at the eighth grade level. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is what we're working with. The idea that we can then explain uh, how currency came into being and how the Federal Reserve causes inflation. I, I think what happens is people who get into intellectual topics. You know, the listeners of this show are in the top one or two percent of intelligence. I'm convinced of it. We all hang out with each other and we have these great debates, and these, but you've got to go into the marketplace. You've got to go into the general population uh, and uh, or at least read the statistics about them uh, before uh, recognizing that uh, we, we do not have the mental capacity uh, at the moment, sorry, somebody just asked um, uh, if uh, a lack of ability to reason comes from childhood trauma. Have I proven this? I, I haven't, uh, but the science seems fairly clear. At least it was, uh, I think, a year or so ago. You can go to uh, www.fdrurl.com forward slash B-I-B, and uh, you can uh, check out the science uh, there. There's a series called The Bomb and the Brain, uh, Long-Term Effects of Child Abuse. And so there's this choice that the freedom movement has. Are uh, you going to go for politics. Or are you going to go for parenting? It's the two Ps. It's the fork in the road that lead to two Ps. One road leads to political action. And obviously, this is the road that is enormously popular. It is enormously popular because it doesn't require personal confrontations with anyone, really. right? So you send a check to Ron Paul, and then you cross your fingers, and you go out, and you do work. I'm not saying it's easy, right? Maybe you go out, and you you know, pound in some lawn signs and all that kind of stuff, and you... Uh, You follow politics, and you hope that that's going to be. And then people may disagree with you, but it's just politics. It's not personal. But if you uh, work to improve your own parenting, that can be very tough. If you work to improve or help people improve the parenting of those around you, that can be very volatile. That can be very difficult. That can cost you friendships. That can cost you relationships if people aren't willing to treat their children better. And so there's this, uh, I throw some money over the mountain, and freedom will come charging over and i don't believe that's the case i don't think the evidence is there for it i think the evidence is entirely against that as the solution i think we have to recognize that it's a slow and steady wins the race and we should be not sending money to ron paul we should be sending people to parenting classes we should be uh, buying books on parenting we should be uh, trying to uh, undo some of the damage that is being done by public education uh, to kids and uh, that's my approach. Look, I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. I, I try to work as consistently from the evidence as possible. Political action has been tried since classical liberalism started, since the Adam Smith uh, wrote The Wealth of Nations, since Ricardo was writing in the 18th century. It has been tried for hundreds of years, and it doesn't work. And the reason that it doesn't work is embedded in what's called public choice theory, which you know we don't have to get into right now. But it basically is that the governments are are always going to have an incentive to grow no matter what. And it can't be opposed by political ideology because human beings are empirical fundamentally and not ideological. And so the path that I suggest uh, based upon the latest science, based upon the historical evidence, based upon the failures of politics to achieve a free society. uh, I mean this is what 60 years since – more than 60 years since uh, Atlas Shrugged was written. And then the movie comes out, and people are still pulling out of their fetid scabbard asses the same crappy, bitchy, non-arguments against Rand. Oh, Ryan Rand, she took Medicare when she was old, so he's a hypocrite, and therefore (laughs) her philosophy is wrong. Oh, come on. He had an affair. Oh, my God. I've never heard that talked about Sartre, who had threesomes with his wife and his students, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Do you never hear about Sartre's sex life? Why? Because he was a cool, funky, gatoin-smoking existentialist. But, but you know, people, that, you read any, anywhere in the mainstream media about Ayn Rand, outside of, you know, maybe reason.com. And uh, all they're talking about is just shitty little snarky ad hominems, you know? Well, there's rough sex in her books, therefore. It's like, you want to talk about rough sex? Look at the fucking Bible, for Christ's sakes, if you want rough sex. Anyway. Yeah, that's always how it is. Yeah, so so people, they, but they, I don't think that the sex portrayals in Atlas Shrugged or the Fountainhead are very healthy or very good. And I think it does speak uh, volumes about her her history. And I think there's a premium podcast about this. But... The reality is it has no bearing on the truth or falsehood of her philosophical arguments. And you simply do not see um, intelligible, intelligent analysis of Randian arguments. It's just the same snarky shit that's been going on for at least two generations now. This is the lack of progress that has been made from a, 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 a genius woman who wrote some just truly astounding books. Her prose style is wooden. You know, uh, her plots are out. Like, what the hell does that have anything to do with anything? You know, I think Socrates had a bit of a funny accent, and that's my term paper on why he was incorrect. I mean, it's embarrassing, but this is the state of uh, of the nation, uh, of the nations as a whole, of the Western culture. It is intensely degraded. Do you know, in the, um, in the 19th, uh, sorry, yeah, in the 19th century, around 1840, American literacy rate in the North was 91 to 97%. 91 to 97% before government schools, Half of Detroit is now functionally illiterate. The degradation of the soul of the West has been absolutely catastrophic since government took over education. There has been a slow and steady decline in literacy since government took over education. And it's catastrophic at the moment. And attempting to make Enlightenment philosophers out of this pitiful, broken, bloodied-up, brain-mashed clay... Is I think, a complete fantasy. And people respond emotionally. They respond violently. uh, They have the um, intellectual self-respect and self-control of a a ferret on a double espresso with a side of Coke. And uh, this is just the reality of it. So, no, we need to rebuild the human capacity for thinking before we can ask for human beings to live in a rational society. It's just not ready.
2: Absolutely. I just, uh, you know, um, think that sometimes it's in the debate with Paul supporters. It's uh, it seems that it might be a useful tool in communicating some of these ideas to. People that don't understand them I never have uh, thought of the idea that Paul would actually get elected or would be able to implement any of these things. It just seems to be some kind of common ground where ideas are actually being expressed. And more and more, it seems like it hasn't uh, been that way with the Tea Party co-opting the movement and blah blah blah. But yes, um, but
0: but where are the ideas going to go? The the fact that people talk about exactly, fiat currency is yeah. fantastic, but where is it? Where is it going to go? Right. See, that's, that's my, my question. question. Yeah. That, right, that's and my, my question. My, too, my argument. My argument. My argument is is peaceful parenting. Is the foundation of the future society that we all want. Peaceful parenting. Absolutely. And and I think the politics is a massive distraction. Um, to me, it's like, you know, it's like, it, it is an addiction because it is, it is not working. It is doing the opposite of working. It is an epic fail. Uh, people have poured tr- billions of dollars and God knows how many man hours into attempting to reduce the size and power of the state through political action. And... The fact is, it hasn't worked, which is not the end of the world. But the reason that I say it's an addiction is that people haven't, they they can't admit that it hasn't worked and they can't figure out why. Because they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'll support this candidate. I'll support this candidate. Oh, this guy seems pretty, pretty, uh, uh, you know, his first name is Rand and he's got a nice toupee and he seems pretty liberty friendly. So I'll support this candidate. And it is exactly the same as an addiction because it is not achieving. What people want. In fact, things are getting worse and worse, and people aren't stopping and saying, "Okay, wait a second, everybody, everybody, whoa, 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 slow down." We've been trying this for five to ten generations, and the governments have kept getting bigger and bigger. So let's see if we can at least ask the question if we're missing something. But everybody's just like, "Oh, Ron Paul's coming back! Yay, revolution! Let's set a chat It's not like there's not there's no self criticism. It has become in essence a government program, which is above. Self criticism. And that's my issue. Why are people not asking why it hasn't worked? Well, that's what addicts do.
2: See, that's they what I try to embody don't. when I speak to them. I try to be the self criticism in somewhat of a participatory role in the movement, but not even because my, my, uh, questions about the fundamental flaws of it make it so i'm not technically even in support of it i just think that it might, you know might be a means as for these ideas to to gain some momentum and then when i actually get into debate with with people of the uh, the Paul movement and everything like that it, it comes clear that they we know we differ on too many actual ideas about the way things should be but um if i need to yield to the to the next caller i'd be happy to thank you so much for your time
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I really do appreciate, look, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm dug it on the run. I mean, the, the man has done some pretty cool things and uh, he's obviously very intelligent. He's uh, he's very confident. You know, he has fought a tough battle in Washington for many years. I don't mean to say that he's like a bad guy or anything like that. But as, as Aristotle said, uh, that we need to value the truth even above those we hold in high regard. And uh, I think that Ron Paul has done some great, great things in some ways. He obviously has helped spread the word about uh, certain aspects of government power that otherwise... For a doctor to deny evolution, this is a problem. Uh, this is, you know, this is choosing a particular personal preference over a universal truth. Uh, that is that is problematic, but... Um, if someone can show me evidence of um, government shrinking as the result of political action, I think that's great. But until the liberty movement and its approach to political action becomes more self-critical and at least ask the question why it hasn't worked and, and, and acts as if there's not just one alternative to how people are going to spend their time and money. Uh, I've put out a number of other alternatives, the against me argument, the, one that, the speech that I gave living free in an unfree world at Libertopia last year. I've put myself front and center about what people can actually do to bring about freedom which is to point out the gun in the room and their relationships with people, to ask people to stop u- advocating the use of violence against them. And there are very few people who are doing that. There are very few people who were doing that. And uh, it may just be too soon. Um, but um, that's something that people can do that is immediate, that they have control over, that doesn't rely upon the integrity of uh, somebody else to, um, uh, and, and voters to get somebody elected. And there are some, but there are very few people who are taking that approach. And I understand why, because it's very volatile. But um, I believe that that's the approach that will work, pointing out the gun in the room, personalizing the the violence that people are advocating when they talk about government solutions, and most importantly, raising your children without aggression. Uh, that is the, the way forward for me. I could be wrong. Maybe Ron Paul will get elected, and I will have to eat an enormous amount of crow. I obviously don't think that I've done no, any particular damage to Ron. No, it, it could be. Look, I mean, I could be completely wrong. Uh, I mean, this is true about just about everything that I say, except for UPB, which is, ah, the foundation. But, but no, because if I'm wrong, then it's through UPB that I'll be proven wrong. But but, look, I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, but, that, that's more but the, the I don't think there's philosophy. any reason to believe that.
2: Yeah, that's more the philosophy I try to embody when having any participation in the Ron Paul movement is more of pointing out the flaws in it and seeing how it, it could maybe potentially be a stepping stone to these ideas, getting uh, more exposure, but definitely not in any way, shape or form uh, a means to the solution. And it's hard to try and embody both of those um, realms, I guess you'd say, because I feel like the self-criticism needs to be a part of the movement and there needs to be someone around saying these things to the Paul supporters. And uh, that's kind of more of the identity that I have in that. But I was wondering, you know, just absolutely what you said, uh, specifying on on your exact particular points. And I agree with you 100%. So thank you so much for your time.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, the last thing I mentioned is that liberty movement is um, uh, it does not have enough entrepreneurs in it, in my opinion, as yet. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you're constantly reevaluating everything that you do, and uh, uh, everything is open to to question. Everything, even your your, your core flagship flagship product, may be uh, ditched, uh, and so everything is open to question and reevaluation. And I think that the liberty movement has had a lot of professors in it, a lot of academics in it, which you know, I obviously have. Uh, some issues with. I think they should all quit and become podcasters as I've talked about before or whatever <laughs> yeah. they're going to do. But that is not a uh, an entrepreneurial um, situation. And it has a lot of politicians in it, which is not exactly the same <laughs> as being an entrepreneur. And so it has a lot. Yeah, so I think maybe that's part of what I bring is just you have to Look at everything from the ground up continually, and um, I just think that's something that the liberty movement needs to do. If we're dedicated to liberty and not the anxiety management of watching the slide into fascism and imagining that, that politics will solve it. Anyway, I appreciate your call. Um, I'll try not to rant too much, uh, but yep. I put a little extra in there because I've gotten so many questions about where I stand relative oh, to, to uh, the podcast I put out a couple of years ago, and I hope that answers people's questions.
2: Definitely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Hello. Can anyone hear me?
0: I sure can. How are you doing?
3: um i'm okay man um this is my second call so i'm not as nervous so i can be a bit more to the point and then hopefully people can get across and stuff like that it's just a query i had and i tried asking about by understand that you're busy so um i appreciate that the calls are the best place to get stuff out if you're too busy and stuff so yeah just want to fire ahead with that go for it okay um I was listening to – and this was a few years ago as well when you first started out the podcast. But you were kind of saying about how um, the situation that you were in – and, you know, I appreciate that you went into detail about your personal history. I think uh, that was quite a brave thing to do. But, yeah, so I was reading about that, uh, uh, listening to that. And um, you were saying about how the experiences about about being around violence didn't make you want to be violent – because um, you know we you're saying we have a choice uh, whether or not we choose to be violent or not, and I think this bothered me
0: a lot. Uh, sorry, actually. and that's just a, just to distinguish that we have a choice whether to be violent. That doesn't mean we have a choice whether to feel violent, to feel like we want to be violent. But I think we have a choice uh, about whether that that actually happens. But sorry, go on.
3: Yeah, and I think this is where I had a dif- difference of opinion because for well, I would say 20 years now since primary school. I've, I've always, uh, and obviously I don't do it as much now because I'm a big guy and I'd get into a lot of trouble if I did, but I would lash out in school and I would uh, I would hit my brothers and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, f- I feel awful for this and stuff like that. And my brothers really don't like me anymore. And, you know, people people in school and stuff like that. But I was encouraged to be violent uh, it was it was like the military. It was kind of like the town I grew up in. I, there was violence everywhere. I couldn't walk down the street without a gang wanting to attack me or my family. Um, the school were very were aggressive with me um, and, and physical with me. Teachers would restrain say they were restraining me when all I did was kind of answer back and stuff like that. My dad would. Watch me get into fights and criticize me for not beating the other guy up. I, I had to be violent. I had to be, and I think I said on the forums, and I think you responded to this as well. I had to stop my dad being violent to me by being more violent. I, 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 I I I feel like I haven't had a choice and and even now I just feel like and obviously I can't go around hitting people anymore and I don't want to either to be honest this isn't something that I enjoy otherwise I wouldn't be going about the steps I wouldn't be oh I wouldn't be ringing here first of all that'd be a bit pointless but you know I'm doing I'm doing therapy I've had therapies and stuff like that I've gotten into a a lot of trouble from doing silly things self-medicating and uh and I, 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 think my, yeah, my, my, my argument is just that it's when you, when you grow up thinking that it's a good thing, when social, st- when your status is judged upon how much you can hurt someone, yeah, even though, you know, you know, you know, I knew that it was all rubbish. I knew it was all rubbish, but I had to survive, man. I had to survive. I had to survive in this awful situation. And, right. and that, and, and, And I, I don't.
0: And I still. Look, what do was it. the What was the alternative? I mean, and I'm not saying there was any valid alternative, but what was the alternative to using your fists as <laughs> uh, as a kid? Well, uh, I used to get. What would t- have t- happened t- if you didn't?
3: Yeah. Um, then my pride would have been hurt hurt a bit, you know. Um, no, no, no. It's more than that. Come on, you didn't.
0: You didn't start. Punching okay. people because your pride might have been hurt a bit. What would have happened to you socially? What would have happened to you in your environment?
3: I, I, I would have been in physical danger, or well, even more physical danger. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I'm not trying to put words in
0: your mouth, right? But I I know that people don't give up peace for you know five bob and a hand job, right? People give up peace because the alternative is far far worse, right? So you didn't just start hitting people or hitting your brothers or punching or self-medicating because of your pride. It had to be more than that. People don't sell themselves out that way unless there's a real, real incentive. And I don't mean this in any critical way at all. I mean, I really, really mean this with great sympathy. So tell me, tell everyone, tell yourself, what would have happened, my friend, if you hadn't taken to the fist?
3: Um then uh, I'd be in the position with my dad. I'd be in the position my brothers are in now, you know, you know, I you know, I was the one who apparently created my brothers to be anxious people. I haven't seen my brothers for years. My brothers, I've seen my dad for years. My brother, my little brother, who was like one of the most happiest, laughing little kids that I knew, um, I hadn't seen him for a few years. And with continual contact with my dad has become this aggressive person who drinks and, and goes out and stuff like that. And, and And they still blame me. They still blame me. So yeah, had I not reacted, I would I would have been even more of a victim. Um I tried to reason with these people. I tried to reason because you know as a kid I think all kids are reasonably you know are amazing people and and I tried to reason. I tried to use those tools. I didn't grow up thinking I want to get revenge on my dad. I grew up thinking I want my dad to love me. I want my dad to to accept me. You know, I, but it it wouldn't happen. And any logical reasonable argument it just would go out the window, and, and I just... And what just, would have happened, uh, sorry to interrupt, what would happen with your peers? What would happen with them? With the other kids at school or wherever. Uh, okay. Um, <sighs> they would have carried on, they would have carried on doing it. Because, you know... My school was violent as well. I mean, I it was quite interesting hearing what you were saying about you not experiencing people that had gotten into fights and stuff. It was just it was everywhere for me. It was everywhere, you know. It was it was it was like a real achievement if you could uh, if you could really hurt someone physically, then that was an that was seen as an achievement. Then ev- yeah. then that bought you a ticket to being left alone. You know. <laughs> you know, I um, I guess I was about
0: twelve. And a friend of mine and I, we were down in the woods because, you know, we, we had no money, right? So our entertainment was, um, you know, picking up a 50 cent uh, can of beans and um, going down to the woods, uh, we We're making a little fire and, and eating and, and shooting the shit and so on. And we were down there once and there were these kids, uh, maybe 16 or 17. And, you know, like when you're a kid, 12 and 17, I mean, you might as well be different species, right? And... They wouldn't let us pass, I mean, <laughs> like a bridge troll or something. And they made us stay, and they were very threatening and, and dangerous and all that. And we were there probably for an hour or two. We, we had to make them a fire. We had to give them our, our beans and all of that. And they were, um, you know, really nasty, nasty guys. And, um, you know, threatened us and, and called us names and all that sort of stuff. And they called my friend uh, who was smaller. I was not, not a big kid. He was smaller than I was. They called him a sucky fag. I remember that. Wow. And uh, they, they pushed him and all of that. And I, I just got so mad uh, because we were so small and they were, they were so big. And I said, uh, man, why don't you pick on someone your own size? And, you know, that was just like pushing a button in the guy. Like he turned around and he just punched me. In the stomach because he knew, you know, like he's verbally berating he some big ass 17 year old guy, verbally berating and pushing over some 12 year old kid. I mean, how pathetic can you be that that's your life, right? And he turned over and he punched me in the stomach and I went down and I, mean, I didn't fight back. What the hell was I going <laughs> to do, right? I mean, um, and I, you know, I guess the only thing worse than hearing, uh, why don't you pick on someone your own size, is hearing it from a squeaky little British kid you know with that kind of accent of, I do because I'm new inside and but I remember even at the time I'm still glad and I'm still you know many years later I haven't thought about this in years but I still I'm still glad I said it I mean it doesn't make any difference but the the punch wasn't so bad you know I got winded and you know all of that sort of stuff and um I certainly had no urge to uh, to fight back and I think the only other I mean, and they they you know when they finally let us go you know they said if if you go to the cops if you go to the cops you're dead right and and we were perfectly aware that that was a very real reality right which is that there's nothing that adults could do to protect us uh, and that that was that was sort of I, I you know if i sort of think back this is long before I had any political thought in my head, uh, but I think that probably had something to do with it, that you could just sort of be stopped and you could be harassed and you could be assaulted and this and that. And yeah, we were, you know, we both perfectly aware that if we went to the cops, there'd be some paperwork, the kids would be back out. They know exactly that the school wouldn't be able to protect us. Then they would just get us, right? And I think it was sort of interesting. Um, And so I have sort of been, around people who are uh, violent. And, you know, the only thing that happened, I guess, after that was, you know, one of them sort of sneered or smirked at me in the uh, cafeteria on Monday and said, how was your weekend, little British boy, or something like that, you know, because it was on the weekend, I guess, so we had been uh, captured, so to speak. And um, it really, I mean, it's it really felt like Lord of the Flies, like in the middle of this civilized, quote, civilized world, you know, that this this could happen and there was no recourse. There was nothing that could be done. Uh, and i think a lot of people who are bullied and i certainly was never consistently bullied but uh, i mean probably go through that same sort of experience and i'm to the life of me i can't exactly remember why i started sharing this with you but i just thought i mentioned it anyway
3: um no, man, it, I mean, it, it sounds really similar to, like, a lot of stuff that I went through as well. There were, you know, we there was this gang of lads and they'd pretend they were your friend and you'd be walking along and they'd just suddenly turn around and attack you and stuff, you know, and, and, and me and my brother would just kind of walk to the shop and we'd see them and they'd chase us and stuff like that and, yeah, it's just, it's you know, and then you, you look at where that comes from and it comes from their parents and stuff as well, but... Yeah, I was just constantly on edge, and I still feel on edge now. And I perceive threat where there is no threat, and I get paranoid. I got a lot. I got very paranoid about uh, contact on the FDR forums this week. Not just with the FDR forums, but with my my friends, people who I know a lot, who I've known a lot longer, um, and. And, and and I also I'm dependent. I'm dependent on other people's opinions. My opinion of myself is so low. I need verification from other people <laughs> that I'm worthy. Otherwise, I'm nothing. And I mean oh the way I treat myself is just it's just appalling and it's it's deeply upsetting and I've not and I've still not made I mean I kind of made that connect an emotional connection after our first call and I got very upset and I, and I you know I started looking after my my flat a lot more cuz I actually wanted to but there's still a lot more stuff to go and you know I'm starting therapy but I just wanted to bring that up cuz with you cuz it it was bugging me about that and I felt like it was it was it was giving me difficulty to try and like you know, I, I think that our, our upbringings are a bit more different, and I just kind of wanted to to, to explain that. I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to excuse that. And as, as I say, as an adult, I don't... No, want... listen, listen, listen. Let, let me just interrupt you. Look, first of all, I don't
0: believe that what children do to survive in a violent environment sticks to them morally. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe that there's any fundamental difference between you and me. In other words, if I had been born exactly as, as we'd switched at birth, right? And if I had been in your environment, I believe that the likelihood is very certain, it's almost certain, that I would have ended up doing what you did. You know, like uh, if, if I'm born in Turkey and you're born in England and we get switched at birth, I'm not going to grow up speaking <laughs> uh, Turkish. I'm going to grow up speaking English and you're going to grow up speaking Turkish, right? because that's the language that's around us. And I believe that the same thing is true of violence. So you're in this, uh, you know, that Pogue song comes to mind. I kiss my girl by the factory wall, dream to dream by the old canal. I kiss my girl by the factory wall, dirty old town, dirty old town. If you were in that kind of environment uh, where it's, you know, punch or be punched, uh, or, you know, you have to be aggressive towards others, otherwise you're going to face significant physical danger, like broken arms or worse, then, yeah, I mean, that's what you do. And, you know, this is this is the great tragedy of siblings as well, you know. Oh, 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 I tell you, this just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to think of, uh, this is as true of my own brother as it is for most of the other siblings that I've known, is that I think... We could have been, my brother and I, we could have been such allies. You know, we could have, you know, huddled together under the blankets and, uh, you know, told the truth and, uh, you know, given each other comfort and been strong with each other. You know, like you always see uh, in in movies, the brothers who stand together against all odds and, we're, you know, nothing can tear us apart. We are a solid wall of fraternal truth and, and integrity. And, and this, you know, boy, this almost never seems to come to pass in the real world. It's a real it's a real fantasy, you know, that your brothers could have banded together and and recognized the, the the trials and tribulations and evils of your environment. I mean, and 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 been a team and hung together and supported each other and stood up for each other. But it seems sadly true that it seems about the easiest people to turn against each other are siblings. Sometimes, does that makes any sense?
3: Well, yeah, in a way, the two youngest ones have teamed up, but unfortunately it's against me because the deflection has been that great. That, you know, like, it's all it's all his. But they've not teamed up against violence as a whole, right? Oh, no, they they embrace it. And, my, you know, yeah, my brother said uh, to me once before we stopped speaking that uh, using force was acceptable in certain ways and stuff. And he wasn't talking about self-defense either, but, you know, he's kind of, yeah, that's his stuff. But yeah, it, it's sad. It's sad, and I miss them. But you know, I can't can't force them to want to speak to me. You
0: know, no. But you never know where your path is going to end up. Uh, you know, you're doing therapy. You're you're starting to take better care of yourself. But yeah. you know, the the way that we get bowed down. You know, there's that Atlas myth, or the guy who's holding up the whole world. The way that we get bowed down is we are forced. As children into situations where we have to do wrong and we are then told that we have chosen to do wrong and then we tell ourselves well I chose to do wrong I chose to hit my brothers I chose to run away I chose to lash out I chose to do drugs. I chose to shoplift. As if these choices were just in the middle of an empty field and we just can choose anything that we want and we make these terrible choices because we're just dumb or bad or some damn thing like that. And I'm telling you, my friend, it's not true. Shrug that shit off. You were trying to survive. You were trying to survive. You were trying to survive. You know, a guy who (laughs) doesn't put sunscreen on and then goes out and plays on the beach all day and gets a sunburn was kind of being dumb. A guy who's stuck on a rubber raft because his ship went down accidentally in the middle of the ocean who gets a sunburn is not being dumb. That's just the environment he's in, right? And if you were, and I, I absolutely believe you, you were in an environment where it was punch or be punched, kill or be killed, attack or be attacked. That is not a blank slate to start with. That is not causeless violence on your part. That is adapting to a situation. <sighs> that you did not create, that you are not responsible for, and that does not stain you in the slightest morally. It is tragic. It stains everybody who was an adult who had some other choices in the environment. But you as a child being dropped into this by random acts of biology, it does not stick to you, what you had to do to survive in that situation as a child. And if you let it stick to you, then you've lost something fundamental and you have unjustly continued to attack yourself when it is no longer necessary. You know, there's that old nasty fraternal or sibling trick where your sibling grabs your arm, makes you punch yourself and say, why are you hitting yourself? Yeah. Well, it's because the guys make it, you punch yourself and if you resist... It's going to get worse. And when there's a size differential, you don't need an explicit threat. And that is what happens. And then we have the choice later on, though. We have the choice to say, well, nobody's holding my hand anymore. And I'm not going to pretend that I was just randomly punching myself as a kid but there was somebody's hand on my fist making me punch myself. I'm not going to pretend that I just woke up one day in a wonderful, peaceful, happy, secure, serene, well-loved world and just started punching the shit out of my face like Ed Norton in Fight Club because it felt fun and I I just became masochistic or sadistic out of nowhere. No, somebody's hand is around our fist making us punch ourselves or punch others. That's called the society we live in the environment that we're in. But don't imagine that it was your choice or that it sticks to you morally. What children have to do to survive does not stick to them. And you don't want to continue the injustice you faced as a kid by continuing to blame yourself for what you did to survive in that environment. Okay. That's what it means to take care of yourself. First thing you do to take care of yourself is stop blaming yourself for stuff that wasn't your fault. And you have taken that stand. You say, well, I was a bit disappointed when you said, I don't do it anymore because I'm a big guy and bad things can happen. No, don't do it anymore because you care for yourself and you want to have love and peace in your life. That's why you don't do it anymore, right?
3: Yeah. Uh it it's building up experience like you know what I'm saying about like building up evidence and saying, well does that really work, but I know what it's like when to have a really good discussion with someone and feel like you know that real sort of you know we sorted this out in a really great way, and that kind of feeling of I don't know you like know unity or whatever, but I you know it feels great, it feels great, it's just getting it in practice a bit more um yeah.
0: Anyway, listen, keep keep up the great work, my friend. Um, yeah,
3: thank you. I appreciate uh, it. Keep the up the
0: therapy. Keep keep taking care of yourself. You know, yeah. keep your place clean and exercise and, you know, eat well and yeah. keep taking care of yourself. You are amazing in what you're doing. Given you. where you came from, you are, uh, you know, the, You know. they all say these unsung heroes, right? The people who abandon the violence of their youth, who begin to self-care, who go to therapy, who, who lift... The half-broken spine of their old soul up the ladder to the new light and hold it aloft. Let the rays catch it. I mean, it sounds completely gay, but you're absolutely heroic in what it is that you're doing. And I think you should take enormous pride in that. And if you want to know just how rare it is, just ask yourself how many other people you know who are doing it. So I think you should uh, be incredibly proud. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Okay. All right, uh, James, do we have any questions from the chat room that had Yearning Burning? So did we have anybody who's got a briefy, brief question? Because we have six minutes, higher, maybe seven, because we started late. Uh,
2: no, not the moment. Um, we had, uh, just so everybody knows, if you're still listening, we had an awful lot of sympathy for the two callers that have been on. So just so that they, they're aware um, if they didn't see it. So just so, you no. Know.
0: Uh, somebody's written, I have some doubts of my choice to not go to college. The only reason I even got through high school was because my teachers loved the little work I would do. I know <laughs> I know that one. I'm fairly confident in myself that I can learn more efficiently on my own, but I have doubt and was wondering what your thoughts on it. You know, this, this has come up before, and you might want to do a search through the archives for the college question. I'll just give you my very brief summary here. And remember, I mean, nobody, least of all me, can tell you what you should do with your life, but these are my thoughts on the subject. Um... If if there's something you want to do that requires a professional degree, like you know being a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer, then you should go and get that degree because you can't really do it otherwise. You can um, in many places in the world you can be a therapist without being a psychologist, and that may be worth uh, looking into. What requirements? So what is required for that? If you're sort of interested in studying anthropology or art history or whatever, which you know may not have a direct path to a job, I think that. You should look at the statistics of people who graduate from that program, how many of them find work, and what sort of average student debt they carry. Uh, there are lots of stories of people in the u s millions of college graduates at the moment because of the slow job market moving back home with their parents with fifty thousand dollars of student loans to pay off. That is a pretty heavy burden to <laughs> to carry uh, with for a degree that doesn't lead you directly to a job so You know, you can do a Google on lots of um, very successful people who've dropped out of college and uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates come to mind, but there are many, many others. It's not necessary to go to college to have a great life or a good career, to be an entrepreneur or anything like that. Um, I have found that it has been somewhat helpful to be. Um, It's, you know, if I'd had had high school, that would be a little tougher. Uh, Undergraduate was good. Master's is better. Uh, But I did it not because I wanted to be a professor, but simply because I loved the subject matter and I really enjoyed having the um, opportunity to study. I did it more for the library even than the professors. And most of the professors I didn't find particularly helpful. And uh, quite quite a few of them were not exactly synonyms for helpfulness, but perhaps even antonyms. So I think that um, uh, don't... I certainly wouldn't go to college unless you want to go to college. Certainly don't go to college because you think it's the right thing to do or the smart thing to do. You need to do the economic research and figure out what happens. Um, I read an article a couple of months ago in Canadian magazine, Macleans about, you know, wh- what are you going to do when you've got your degree in anthropology and then what, right? So, you know, if you want to go through to be a professor or you need something else, some piece of paper for credentials, then, you know, uh, that's the only way to go. But I-, I wouldn't do it just because it's the thing to do. Uh, I wouldn't do it just because... Other people are doing it or people tell you it's a good idea. There um, certainly are improvements in your lifelong salary when it comes to being a a college graduate. But, you know, there's four years of lost earnings and quite often some, uh, some debt that goes with it as well. The other thing that I would say is that if you're not going to go to college, I think that an entrepreneurial life would probably be a better approach. If you don't go to college and you're an employee, then I think there is uh, some significant limitations that may accrue to you because of other people's perceptions, like, yeah, he's only got high school and so on. So uh, I think college is good if, you know, if you want to be an employee and uh, you want to sort of be able to move ahead, uh, I think it can be useful. And of course, there's nothing to say that you can't do college when you get older, uh, night school and so on, but uh, I think it can be useful if your parents are going to pay, so much the better, but um, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I think it becomes less uh, less useful um, unless, again, it's some particular uh, career that needs a piece of paper. So I hope that helps. Uh, and uh, thanks again for the questions. I also wanted to thank you uh, to the listeners who uh, a listener just wrote in. I talked to him once before, and uh, strongly urged him to finish high school. Uh, he just wrote to me to say, "By Jove, I did finish high school and." Uh, <laughs> He, um, uh, he didn't finish high school in ancient Rome, uh, but, um, oh, and happy mother's day to, uh, to all the great moms out there. You are the future, whether your mom happens to be a mom or I guess in Isabella's case, a dad, <laughs> uh, happy mother's day to everyone. And, um, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And the peace of the mothers is the the, the personal peace of the mothers is the worldwide worldwide peace of the next generation. So I hope that you will uh, take the time to applaud and appreciate what you're doing in bringing peace to the world. I hope that you will make renew your commitments to non-aggressive, peaceful, philosophical parenting. It is a wonderful thing. It is working beautifully in our household. Uh, Izzy is the happiest child that I've ever known. And uh, I just um, want to thank everyone, again, who's, who's made this amazing journey this amazing show I say amazing show on the Sundays because it's mostly the listeners I think that um it's a wonderful and beautiful thing I think we're doing great things in the world and I think everyone who's part of the show should be incredibly proud and have yourself a wonderful wonderful week